This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Angel Island Conspiracy, and the author is Robert Hall. And he joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Bob. Hi, Steve, and it's uh, great to be with you. Well, this is an interesting slant on international terrorism because it comes from your personal experiences as a lifetime sailor right in San Francisco Bay. Yes. Uh, the time is uh, 1981 in the San Francisco Bay Area, the, uh, the time of, of Cold War politics and anxieties uh, and uh, pre-9-11 American values. It's also a time before the Internet and cell phones and what life and human communications were like when they could not be instantaneously gratified by electronic means. And the uh, characters themselves are simple citizens like you and I who happen to stumble upon a, uh, a very serious plot. And as you put it, how heroes are made by circumstance and not born. Yes, I think that to show that the, the the potential to be exceptional lies in all of us, and is not just waiting to be uh, is waiting to be released by events. Excuse me, to to say that the heroes are made by circumstances and, and not born, and uh, and by this we tend to to meet situations like this when we're confronted with them in the most exceptional way. We probably, as you know, regular folks. Wouldn't believe that we could be heroes, but when faced with uh, extraordinary circumstances, ordinary people sometimes do extraordinary things. Yes, they do extraordinary things within the within their uh, their limitations, within their uh, their expertise as uh, as sailors, and and not using weapons or sophisticated devices such as you might see in a James Bond movie, but uh, simply by their their wile and their guile, they they uh, they manage to uh, to do quite well against some uh, pretty professional type of uh, terrorists. Your book opens up with Travis Blake just talking about how much he loves to sail in San Francisco Bay, and he's out on his 50-foot motor sailor named Lolita and is headed for, what is it called, Angel Island. Now, why Angel Island? Is that a, a real tourist area or a special place to sail to? Yes, uh, Angel Island is is now a uh, California state park. Has been since 1960s, really early 1960s. It used to belong to the army. The army basically uh, grabbed hold of it after uh, California became a state and 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 built some barracks and immigration station and also uh, some gun emplacements at certain times in our history when they were necessary and even a Nike uh, missile base. But in 19 in the 1960s when it was taken over by the state, it was still pretty much pristine and uh, and a wonderful hilly natural landscape. That, that tourists can come to by boat or by ferry boat if they don't have a boat or friends with a boat, and they can hike the island and see some of the most extraordinary views of the bay, the Golden Gate Bridge, San Francisco, the East Bay, Alcatraz, that can be seen from anywhere in the bay. So it's a, it's a real haven for hikers and bicyclists and campers. The thing about it is, is that it's closed to the public for many months of the year uh, after sunset. And so basically there's just some rangers that keep an eye on the place, but at night, it's empty. In this case, it is uh, a place that uh, gives a golden opportunity for terrorists to organize a strike against the uh, San Francisco landmark in plain view of the island. And on this day, Travis is just enjoying the wonderful thrill of sailing, and he comes across this German naval battle flag on a boat, and that just startles him. Yes. Uh, well, he meets a German uh, uh, at Ayala Cove, which is uh, the, the the cove where the uh, ferry uh, delivers tourists and hikers, and also uh, there are some mooring buoys there for private boats to come in. He sails over there, uh, grabs the buoy next to a, a fellow on a trawler who's flying this flag, and uh, very astonished by the flag, uh, he, he tries to engage in conversation with the guy who was uh, very short with him, 
and uh, goes about his business of uh, rowing his dog to to shore, but actually disappears that evening uh, on the island, and he doesn't. And Travis doesn't see him again until the next morning. So obviously, a lot of questions are filling up Travis's uh, mind, and probably uh, there are some fears here. Well, he also encounters. I mean, again, I, I've I've personally encountered people flying all kinds of flags from yachts, including a, a German naval imperial battle flag in, in my in my time on the bay. But Travis encounters a, a, another boat uh, flying the same flag, who who is also uh, anchored off of Angel Island, and uh, at night, and and this even you know, it piques his interest even more, and he uh, goes ashore to try to find out uh, why this boat is anchored off of Angel and finds that there are people uh, uh, around a, a barracks building very near the waterline with flashlights working, it's, it seems like, from the boat. And that generates even more curiosity, and so he starts to follow these boats around the bay to see what they're up to and uh, tries to keep an eye on what, uh, what actually uh, transpires uh, at these barrack buildings on the island. It sounds like just something out of a novel, but you could see how something that, like that could really happen. Well, it, it could, and it was a little scary writing it because uh, there are several old army buildings, being that the army had it for uh, so many years before it fell to the state to become a state park. And all these old barracks buildings, many of them are in, in clear view. They're empty for the most part. They, they usually occupy spaces on the island in clear view of several San Francisco Bay landmarks and the fact that the island for many months of the year has a curfew that does not allow anyone to be on the island after sunset just makes it ideal for somebody seeking a place that uh, to amount such an attack on, on, on a San Francisco or a, a Bay Area landmark and not be at all disturbed by, uh, by an awful lot of people, as is not the case in most of the rest of the Bay Area. Now, Travis is not working alone on this mystery. Tell us a little bit about some other characters. He has a, a very good friend uh, named Carol, who... Uh, uh, as um, who has a berth next to him in Clipper Yacht Harbor in Sausalito. And they become fast friends. They were once high school sweethearts, but uh, he chose to uh, marry another. And, and uh, she, in uh, good nature and over the years, uh, do their, their mutual love of sailing, uh, uh, become very, very close friends. She accompanies him in trying to figure out just what these guys are about on the island and, and around in the bay. They try to, to follow them and, and, and determine what's, what's going on and, and, and uh, try to report the same to the, to the authorities, who kind of turn a deaf ear to the whole thing because in 1981 it's so completely unbelievable that anybody be doing anything like this. Yes, uh, Carol and Travis become uh, even more than friends as, as the book continues. Uh, again, they kind of rediscover, rekindle their uh, uh, high school romance. Basically, working together and, and coming close to death with all their activities against these terrorists, uh, you know, their, their, their bonds become renewed. The terrorists themselves are very familiar to them as head guy for the terrorists, happens to be a sailing buddy of theirs, somebody that they've, they've crewed on his boat for a number of years who happens to be a transplanted uh, German, but uh, after all these years, turns out to be something else again, something they would never have imagined. So obviously they're very shocked and surprised. Yes, to the point they're somewhat not, not prepared and, and somewhat... Uh, unready for dealing with with a friend or a group of friends that they'd gone to school with and that they'd sail with their whole lives who turn out to to have uh, some pretty uh, nefarious ideas about about things and uh, this this throws them completely off guard so i guess uh, be careful of who you become friends with because you never know what's really going on <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> i mean i've chosen in this case uh, kind of develop these as Germans. And, and I guess the situation is is that uh, in, in all you know movies and, uh, that have come in recent years, it seems to me that the, the best villains, at least as far as the movies and books are concerned, are, are Nazis or, um, or Germans. They seem to be the most interesting to us, and uh, they seem to be the most provocative. So it, it, it just was a, uh, a natural offshoot to develop these guys as neo-Nazis. It seems to work out well. It's worked out well for George Lucas, so I, I suppose it can, <laughs> it can work for just about anybody. You describe your story with three words, adventure, danger, and perseverance. Tell us about the word perseverance, why you use that word. Perseverance on the part of the hero and heroine, Travis and Carol, who, you know, when they, when they encounter th these activities, are starting to put two and two together 
when they do, they're not, you know, they're not policemen, so they try to contact uh, uh, the police and uh, the, the Marine Patrol and people that they know uh, who are policemen, and, and no one believes them. They go over to this building, and there's, when, when they and the park rangers uh, go to the building, they find that they can discover any kinds of activities, so they tend to write Travis and Carol's experiences off as lunatic. So Travis and Carol are left to their own devices to try to stop this thing from happening because they have a pretty good idea of, of when. And so their perseverance is quite commendable in the face of the, the fact that they're not getting any help from anyone who, you know, who could really help them from the authorities themselves. The time is 1981, and we might call it a simpler time, but the struggle is still the same, and your focus is is on this struggle between good and evil that goes on within everybody. Yes. I mean, I pull a quote uh, from uh, a cartoon strip that uh, was uh, used to be written back in the 50s, and it uh, was called Pogo. And in the cartoon strip, uh, some animals of the forest become uh, aggravated by others, and they decided to have kind of a war. And in the end, I think uh, what they really uh, discover, and, and, and I quote, is we have met the enemy and he is us, which is stolen from a quote by a famous general uh, in World War II where he said, we have met the enemy and he is ours. Pogo took it to a new level and a new meaning. That new meaning is, is very critical in, in the internal struggle that takes place in each one of us, uh, this, this struggle to do good or not to do good. I kind of feel that in a light way, I can talk about things like this that, that, we, that we have to contend with as individuals and put them you know, in, in kind of a, a, a fictional mode with a little bit of, uh, of humor and, uh, and with intrigue and mystery as a background and possibly uh, make them uh, somewhat interesting to, uh, for, for, for the reader to, to look at. And it sounds like you paint a lot of beautiful pictures of the San Francisco Bay Area. Well, yes, uh, I think the thing that about San Francisco Bay is, uh, and, and Jack London found it so many years ago in his writings, is that it is a beautiful place. It's an international place. Uh, as viewed from the water, it's quite a different place. I don't think very many people, they see, they see things from the land. They'll visit Alcatraz. They'll even visit Angel Island. Uh, they'll ride a ferry. But to be out on the bay all the time and see things that we only see from the opposite direction makes it a little bit more interesting. And you took a, a style, you, a screenwriter's approach to the story. It's basically a novella or, or a short novel. The chronology of events as the action unfolds is pretty rapid because it unfolds in a short time period. And I guess what I mean by a, a screenwriter's practical approach to the story is telling it and keeping it moving and in focus, but always keeping it moving and, and keeping it pretty much rapid fire. Is this the beginning of any kind of a series? Well, I think it is. I'm starting to put together what I think will be a second ad adventure with, with uh, Travis and Carol. I think that they were sort of the, the regular citizens of the world, but now they seem to be faced with, uh, with new challenges that, uh, that, that put them in a uh, new situation. Yes, I think Carol and, and Travis will be back again, hopefully. Well, once you've done what they have done, you're no longer average, that's for sure. Well, yeah, they have seemed to, uh, to, be, to have been changed by the events. And because San Francisco Bay to them was basically a big water playground, a water world, uh, uh, if you will. And it changes them because all of a sudden they could never think of the bay and the world in the same way again because they were pretty basically happy-go-lucky types. They were suddenly faced with having to deal with a more serious topic, and uh, it, it changes them as it would change anybody. Bob, tell us how to get your book. Well, right now it's available on the Internet only, but you, you can go to my publisher, iUniverse, and uh, you can get it from them online, or you can go to Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com or even Books A Million, and the book is available there. All you have to do is, uh, is order it by name. Well, thanks for being on iUniverse Radio with this special edition of Trafford Publishing. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Steve. It was a pleasure. That was Robert Hall. He is the author of his book, The Angel Island Conspiracy.
You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on Toginat with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus, NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing? Chronicling her opinions on everything. The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Mom with Jill Hickey. Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com. What's your story? Are you living it? Well, you could be. It's What's Your Story with Hillary Bilbrey. Friday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Her passion is helping others discover, create, and live their personal brands. Yep, you heard me. You have a brand. No different than Coke, Pepsi, or Nike. You are a walking, talking, living, breathing brand. You're not a logo. You're not a tagline. The choices you make become the path you take. This is your brand. Now, live your story. Your brand is not just what you say it is. It's also what others say it is. So what are you communicating? And how can you create an authentic brand? We'll take on these challenges with What's Your Story? Every week, Hillary will feature teens, moms, and organizations that are learning and living their story. Now, her passion is to help others discover, create, and live their personal brands. To find out more, go to inspiredbyfamily.com. It's What's Your Story with Hillary Bilbrey. Friday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Reality of God in the Universe, Humankind Integrating with Life on God's Earth. And the author is Bedrick Hettick. And Bedrick joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello. Hello. Good to have you with us, Bedrick. Thank you. I'm glad to be here with you. First of all... Tell us why you wrote your book. Certainly, uh, you've spent a, a lot of time thinking deeply and in search of meaning of life. Essentially, I, my motivation was my belief that humankind needs a different concept of God that can bring our human diversity together to live peacefully and harmoniously with each other. And we haven't been doing that very well uh, either in the past or even right now. And it's because of the diversity of our humanness uh, in all of its manifestations that uh, makes this uh, a a difficult uh, time for life and uh, how do we resolve our diversities with each other. You wanted to share with us some of your thoughts from uh, uh, an essay that you've written called Understanding of the Reality of God and How We Relate to God. you want to share some of that with us now? Yeah, surely. So I start with, uh, here we are living on God's earth, an infinitely small speck tucked away in the universe. And how did you and I and the rest of us get here? Well, it all starts from God's power plans. Power plans? Yes, power plants, the galaxies and their stars that distribute energy throughout the universe. They are the power of God. For human life, our realities are the stars in the night skies above us and the earth surrounding us night and day. We have not the slightest idea of why any of it exists, but for our answers, we need to have an understanding about who God really is. And would you believe that God is a reality embedded in the universe? God, however, is not physically perceptible to us. No one sees God. No one talks with God. No one hears God. God's power creates life. But God, here on earth anyway, but, but God is not an authority over any life. Life can only respond to the reality of its environments. It is only from the activities and the results from the power of God that we perceive a spirit in the universe, the spirit of God revealing the soul of God. 
All life is empowered from the power of God with a force for life. And then we ask, how do we then relate to God? The answer comes from the evolutionary process for how we learn to adapt to the environments in which each of us live. From the beginning of humankind some 5,000 years ago, we have developed many understandings about the realities that surround us. The process for becoming civilized started sometime during this period. This process starts at birth, when we have an awareness that is embodied in us. It drives our needs and desires for survival and fulfillment in life. Eventually, <coughs> our human curiosity leads us to explore how we can better adapt to life. Next comes discovery, from which we learn and reason how to live a better life. It is only during the last 5,000 years that history, that recorded history reveals significant knowledge and understanding about the realities of our existence and about how they relate us to the power of God. In today's human world, we are apparently more civilized in our behavior than all past generations, but then, how civilized are we throughout all humankind? The problems that we have, that we still have, rather, uh, within humankind relate to the diversity already existing between us. Many are resolved, but unfortunately, too many are not. Knowledge is the foundation of the creative spirit of humankind. Animal life also has a creative spirit, but it is apparently limited to the inborn behavioral and physical attributes and the diversity of its genes. In the evolutionary process of human life, our genes have become extended beyond animal life, especially those involving the neurological system of our bodies. We claim we are no longer an animal but a civilized entity, presumably living compatibly together with one another, individually and collectively. We try to create for ourselves an understanding of how we can work together to utilize the resources of the earth, hopefully for a better life than just living in the wilderness and its wilderness. With humankind's creation of the sciences and its methods, we are today more reasonably unable to understand the reality of our humanness and the realities surrounding us. Science connects us directly to the creativeness of God from the power of God. To the best of our abilities, we learned about the physical and behavioral attributes of energy and of the matter created from it, including life here on God's earth. Just as significant, we also learned it is only from the prevailing conditions that any specific environment, within any specific environment, that determine how these attributes interact. From the knowledge we gain, we are very aware that both the power of God and the power of force for life in us create the ever-changing conditions to our earthly environments every day of our lives. What then is the difference between the creative spirit of God and the creative spirit of humankind? For God's spirit, it is obvious to us there are no plans or controls over the ever-changing conditions that God's power plants create throughout the universe. For us on God's earth, this creates many frustrations during life. For a prime example, you just need to look at the weather every day of our lives. So the weather creates the diversity of its activities from the ever-changing conditions we perceive in the environment surrounding us. God's purpose for the weather, however, remains unrevealed and unknown to us. The one thing we do know is that despite its negative effects, it is nonetheless essential to the existence of land-based life, which had its origins coming from the life that already existed in the waters of the earth. For our creative spirit, it comes from the knowledge we developed to become civilized. Our only choice for living our lives is to adapt ourselves to the conditions that continuously evolve within the the diversities of the environments of the Earth's environment for life. We establish purpose for our activities. We make the plans and designs to control the diversity of our environment to satisfy our needs and desires. In my view, this is an extension of God's creative power in us with the force for life. Only we create and try to control everything we do and say. We are, however, limited to our abilities within the ever-changing environments of the environment for life. 
our physical and behavioral attributes are subject to the to all of the ongoing activities that surround us, especially those of our own doing. It is obvious that humankind is a highly diverse is highly diversified in both physical characteristics and behavioral attributes. We may think we are civilized, yes. There is much unity in our civilized activity today. Even so, there is also a substantial lack of unity that continues to prevail. The extent to which we can adapt our diversity to live acceptably and compatibly with each other in peace and harmony is a measure of how civilized we really are. The problems of today's human world is that we minimize the importance for valuing our humanness in our relationships with one another. If we want to come together in a unity of peace and harmony to live compatibly together in all of its activities, we need to pay more attention, significant attention, to maintaining and sustaining the value of human life. For this, we need to build a faith in our humanness, building faith that relies only on the concept of God as an authority over us does not necessarily resolve the problems of our diversity. The diversity of religious faiths have been and still are at the forefront of humankind's problems. Only we are an authority over our behavior for adapting to the natural environments that surround us. Humankind is not separated from nature. We are integrated within it, along with all other life. Also, we are not separated from the power of God and the spirit behind God's power. We need to place a value on our humanness with a spirit for God that honors God for our gift of life. When we do, we also honor ourselves. This is the essence of the power in us to claim we are civilized. Doesn't this tell us something about how we should be behave in response to our God-given life? For me, this view relates back to my book, The Reality of God in the Universe. For us to acquire a civilized spirit in the spirit for God in everything we do, from sleeping to governance. Otherwise, we will continue to disregard the negative aspects of our diversity and ignore the importance of the values we need to place on our humanness with respect to all human activities. As smart as we may think we are, we must realize that we from within ourselves create good and bad behavior, not God and not the devil. It is clear that the diversity of our human activities and the results interfere significantly with human behavior. Two kinds of activities, first the activities related to the creative spirit of God in us, and the second are the activities generated from our own creative spirit. The force for life in us drives both of them. Whatever our differences, only we can resolve them. We need to work as a team with a common spirit to create a goal for how we can bring ourselves together. The most important value we have is the value we place on human life. We need to respect and to care for each other in sharing the resources of God's earth. We come to God, not the other way around. This can be a personal association if you so choose, but you and God, between you and God, and in in the closet of your own mind. Humankind is its own authority and needs faith in itself. We are related to God with the force for life coming from the power of God. To honor God relates us to God with the spirit for God. What remains now is how future generations will move forward to minimize the effect of today's diversity to live peacefully and harmoniously with one another, individually and collectively. My thoughts are an overview of how to make us all aware of the reality of, the, of our environment and how we may respond for a new beginning with a spirit for God. So that's my view of the reality of God in my book. And that is a summary, uh, kind of in general, of the reality of God in the universe uh, you have a very technical background, and, and thus we uh, understand uh, how uh, deeply you look into things. You have a, you're from MIT, a degree in chemical engineering. Yes, both uh, 
master's uh, and, and a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering practice. And uh, that was some years ago, like 1943. And uh, then I, shortly after, I went to work briefly for an oil company uh, for about uh, six or eight months and then was drafted into the service uh, and spent the next uh, couple of years uh, during the war. Uh, and uh, then uh, I opted to stay in Japan for another two and a half years, roughly, uh, or not quite that long. But uh, anyway, uh, that was to help the Japanese rebuild their synthetic fertilizer uh, uh, industry, which much of which had been destroyed uh, during the, the war. And uh, I had some success in realizing uh, the uh, results of that. And this was done uh, when, when I was working as a civilian in, at McBarrett's headquarters in the scientific and uh, industrial division of the, uh, of the occupation. Bedrick, how do we get your book? Well, you can get it uh, on my website, uh, which is uh, the Reality of God book com. You can uh, also find it at Barnes and Noble, and uh, you can find it, uh, I think, uh, on Yahoo and uh, some of the other uh, internet connections. And otherwise, uh, I just have it available locally here, and uh, I have donated a lot of copies to a lot of different people uh, over time here to uh, try to move it along. But it's been a slow process. Well, we appreciate all your insights and your searchings for the reality of God in the universe. And thank you for being on iUniverse Radio, Patrick. And thank you for the opportunity to do so. And uh, I will uh, tune in on uh, Toganet at some point to hear myself talking to the world. Well, thanks again. And thank you very much for this up again for this opportunity. That was Bedrick V. Hetick. He is the author of his book, The Reality of God in the Universe, Humankind Integrating with Life on God's Earth. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Girlfriended is on Toginet. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, with your hosts, Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan. This show is your chance to share, learn, laugh, and connect with other women. The Girlfriended Principle was born out of loss. Lisa had recently had her mother pass away from cancer, and my mom um, was murdered. A man just walking into a room and started a 23-second shooting spree. I think one of the things we both realized going through those tragedies is that you can be extremely okay and be extremely sad. Check out Girlfriended.com. And then be a part of Girlfriended, the radio show, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central. You know, your boyfriend or, or your husband or whatever, they don't totally understand that emotional side to a woman like another woman does. And I think that's so important just to mm-hmm. have somebody that you go, she gets me. Check out the website, Girlfriended.com. Don't miss Girlfriended with Patty Wyatt and Lisa Jernigan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. 
the title of the book, The Danny Diaries, Overcoming Schizophrenia. And the author is Ann Kluver Weinberg. And Ann joins us now on this special edition of iUniverse Radio, brought to you by Trafford Publishing. Hello, Ann. Hi, Steve. Well, it sounds like you're right next door, and you're talking to me from South Africa, Johannesburg. Yes, I'm in Johannesburg, South Africa, <laughs> well, that's where all the soccer is going on. Yes, very busy, busy, and you're a very busy lady writing a full-length book about Danny, your son. Yes. I want to read what you've written about your book, just in general, so people get an idea of what we're talking about. You say... This book is about my teenage son's breakdown. He was diagnosed as schizophrenic, but I thought that pot and being a teenager had a lot to do with it, and I gradually helped him to get completely well. And it, so it has a happy ending, but there were some tough times along the way. That's right, yes. Was, it was very surprising, you know. It was not expected by anybody, including his primary school teachers, you know, they were most astonished that he'd had such a, a terrible breakdown because he'd seemed so lively and normal and, and uh, you know, good-humored and easy. Nobody expected this to happen. And very, very bright. Yes, yes. Tell us about how you discovered that your son uh, had a very high intelligence. In fact, he was learning to play the guitar at a very early age. Yes, he was. But then my my husband had had uh, quite recently learnt the guitar with John Williams in in London, um, quite a famous guitar teacher because we'd lived in London, and um, so you know my husband had um, all the the sort of recent technique in his own mind, and so it was very easy to teach five year old Danny. And um, Danny took to it. Um, he wasn't at nursery school that year, and so so his father and he had a lot of time together to um, you know for him to learn the guitar. And he became, at first, as a child, he was a classical guitarist. But then um, the times were against that. You know, we didn't live in an area where playing the classical guitar got you any sort of status you had to play rock guitar and so gradually you know his friends got him to play rock rock and roll and pop and jazz and that sort of thing and that you know that although he was he was very good at it it also led him into the um the era the era of of uh, rock and roll and and the drugs scene in his case not heavy drugs just the um the pots the cannabis uh dacha as it's called here and um a whole lot of things happened all together i think he he had grown up much too fast when, uh, when he was um 12 his voice had broken and he looked about 16 and in that year before the breakdown, when he was 14, it was very difficult to keep ordinary young teenage rules because his mates, his fellow musicians, were, were 20, 21, that sort of age. So they would come and fetch him and say they'd look after him. But in fact, he was trying to keep up with them, and he, that was one of the problems, that he wasn't socially as mature as they were, um, and they took him into all their bands, and um, it was just the absolutely done thing to to smoke um, pot. It was handed around, and, and he, of course, wanted to prove that he was as, as good as the bigger boys, so he did that too, and a lot of things came together. The very fast development and and great stardom he had in his rock and roll days. You know, he won the Battle of the Bands with the band he had put together, and he was the the star and the composer and and uh, the best guitarist and all those things. So, 
he he had very high status, much too young, and that wasn't good for him either. Now and then older older women liked him, which which was another confusing situation. Right. You had this discipline to keep a diary and, and very specific detail. Yes, I think it, it got more detailed after his breakdown because then I was really, you know, I was confused myself and I was trying to, to make sense of it. You know, when he was a child, uh, when both my children were young, I just wrote down what they said because it was quaint and funny and interesting. But after his breakdown, then I started keeping it in much more detail just to sort it out, you know, see, write down what people were saying and, and, and whether I agreed or didn't, didn't agree. Because, you know, I was there observing him. And I always said to people, they said, well, you must have had a knowledge of psychology. And I said, well, no, I'm not an expert in psychology, but I am an expert in Danny because I'm with him all the time. And some of the things, you know, we'd go to a psychiatrist and a psychiatrist would say, well, he's, he's totally, his mind is totally confused. He has no way of getting from A to B. And then we'd come out of the that interview and he'd say I, I want to go and buy a record and, and uh, can you give me the Christmas money and I'll write it down. You know, in other words, totally organized because he wasn't a frightened teenager anymore confronting a psychiatrist who was going to pronounce him mad. He was just um, uh, going home or that ordeal was over and he was a lot more sane. So I could see the same bits which were, came in between the, the, the seriously daft things, and I had to try and um, analyze what was going on. And I was very much alone in this, because my friends were, were nice to me. They were supportive and, and kind to me and worried about me, but they weren't much good when it came to what to do about Danny. And um, my family weren't here. My sisters lived uh, out of South Africa. And my mother was very old. And, and my husband was very supportive, but he also took it very hard. He used to get migraines. He, he went out to work. He was a, a, a school music teacher. And then the strain of it led to, to migraines. So... Although he was he was supportive of me, um, he wasn't an awful lot of help when it came to what do we do next? How do we tackle this? What we what's the best thing we can do for Danny at this point? And my daughter also she was so horrified by you know his mad sayings and so on. The thing she was in Cape Town. She was away. She was doing a drama course. And when she came home and, and found just how strange he was and how strange his mind had become, that, that frightened her, you know. She tended to stay away and not come home for holidays and so on. So I was very much alone, and I suppose the diary helped me to, it was sort of companion to, to my, my life. One of the reviewers said this, this is a painful, frightening, but ultimately triumphant story of a young adolescent's plunge into confusion and schizophrenia. It's full of drama, but it is told honestly with no attempt to dramatize the facts. That's a great review. <laughs> it's not nice, yes. Yeah. And, and you say, yeah. too, that, you know, people who go through tough uh, experiences with their children or with family members, and you say, don't listen to the psycho babble. <laughs> don't despair. Yeah, I mean, look, if it, it wasn't that I didn't um, try and understand and, and read books and, and uh, talk to experts and so on, and where they made sense, that was fine. Then I could, uh, you know, I could apply what they said. But um, an awful lot of nonsense was talked at that time. You know, they said it was the mother's fault if a child got schizophrenia. It, they said, 
um, you know, R.D. Lang said the, the mother gives the child mixed messages when he's little. But that was so obviously nonsense in my case because I'm, I'm a very straightforward person, you know, and I would never have given him mixed messages. So those sort of theories were just, um, you know, I could, some of them I could just ignore. And then others were a whole lot more difficult. I mean, when to medicate was a headache beyond belief, you know. I agonized over that because I knew if I gave him medication, the antipsychotic medication, he would calm down, but he would be like a zombie. Mm. And uh, I thought, how does he grow up Right. if he's just being a zombie? Right. So I would try and cut down the pills and then he would go crazy and, and break doors and things, you know, so wow. it was a very much um, ups and downs but and you... then little by little good things would happen and he would uh, one had to we had to praise him for tiny little improvements um, which would seem quite inappropriate, you know, for a 17, 18-year-old or whatever he was by then. Um, but the, it worked. He, it worked to give him little acknowledgments for small tasks that he performed. That seemed to be how we eventually came through it, and then we gave him bigger tasks, and uh, eventually he got a... Um, a, a sheltered job working for for a, a blind institute helping the the blind African people to put plugs together so he would go off and also all all the car things you know we gave him a motorbike which was crazy beyond belief and one would never do it in in any sort of normal situation you wouldn't give a disturbed teenager a motorbike but it happened to be exactly right because it gave him something to focus on something absolutely um, clear and, and much longed for to focus on so that was one of the one of the strange things we did and that's why I think it is an interesting book because we were not um, you know, we were, we were doing things which in the ordinary way you wouldn't do because we just had to do what made him feel better about himself and start to function in a slightly less dysfunctional way. And we have a couple minutes left. Uh, you also say put love and support above everything. And that's what really you're saying here right now. You just got to yeah. focus on the other person and and not think about yourself at all, I guess. You you really had to uh, give, 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 right? Yeah, absolutely. But also take time off. You know, my husband was good about that. You know, he would let me go off with friends when, when he was able to be home with Danny. So I did need a bit of time off as well. Otherwise, I wouldn't have survived. What's some advice can you give to others who are struggling with a similar or a, a very challenging experience at home? What would you say to them? Try and, try and see any, any little good, anything which, which the person does which is, which is pleasant or helpful, you know, then just be over the moon about that. Just always be ready to... to I, I would wake him up in the morning with coffee, and even if I had woken up feeling terrible, I knew that I had to go into his room and have a, a warm, loving voice. Otherwise, the whole day would be ruined. So you have to be incredibly disciplined yourself because immediately, I mean, I'm not saying for a moment that I didn't get out of control and angry myself. Of course I did. But the more you can just support and love and uh, see the good, the more your your child will, will respond to that and start. Because he needed to, to re 
reinvent himself, regrow his his con- all the confidence he'd had as a child. He lost, and he had to get that back, and he got that back through through this method of encouragement, encouragement, encouragement. Well, that is the answer. There you go. It's uh, and it's also as a reviewer said. Uh, Anne's distinguishing feature is realness, and that's what we're talking about here. You you just took yeah. this realness to an unusual extent, and you had to focus, and, and you obviously were very successful, and your son is enjoying a normal life now, and uh, congratulations, and congratulations on publishing your book. I know it will be a great benefit to everyone who reads it. And tell us how to get your book. Uh, well, traffic say it's on all the internet sites. It's, uh, they talk about bookshops, but I don't think it's in bookshops yet. My sister managed to get it through Amazon.uk, so I, I presume people can get it through Amazon.com and through other um, internet outlets at the moment, uh, or just directly from Trafford, and and you will have the Trafford address. Um, you know, you could just ask them. You could just uh, do it through them. They also have a bookshop, but I haven't managed to order through their bookshops. But that may be just that I'm not very computer literate. Well, thank you, Anne. Thank you for being on this iUniverse radio show. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Steve. That was Anne. Kluver Weinberg, she is the author of her book, The Danny Diaries, Overcoming Schizophrenia. And this special segment of iUniverse Radio is brought to you by Trafford Publishing. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.